Today's guest is Nick Wallace. He's the guy who oversees the day-to-day operations of Wallace Farms. Wallace Farms is a family-run farm that produces nutrient-dense, high-quality meat in the Midwest. They don't just focus on the animals, but they know that having a healthy, thriving soil ecosystem produces high-quality grass, which produces healthy, high-quality cows, which in turn translates to healthy, thriving humans. We are what we eat. Here's my interview with Nick. Damn, dude. I've been getting meat from you for... I don't know how long. It's been a while. I'm going to say 10 years. How long have you been doing that? Personally, me, since 2005, six. So six, 16 years, me, and then the family, another three on top of that. Oh, wow. I was living in Chicago when we started the company, and we started thinking about it in 2000, 2001. We had just softly, barely done it for a few years. And then 2003, we incorporated. I was in Chicago. I left Chicago in 2003, 04. We moved to Colorado, did a culinary program up in the mountains. Hold on. Let's start from the very beginning. All right. All right. So I'll just give you my quick journey. I grew up in Northeast Iowa. My dad was a farmer. Strawberry Point, Iowa. Beautiful place. Small town, 1,500 people. He's farming commodity. The 80s happened for your audience. Mid-80s, interest rates for farmers went from 5% to 22%. Well, went for more than farmers, but I mean, just the general population, right? I mean, every small business in the 80s, if you're there around, they remember interest rates went from 5%, 6% to 20, 20 plus percent in, in a matter of like two years. Yeah. And so that takes all the fun out of everything, right? I mean, could you imagine every month getting a 20%? interest rate on your line line of credit, you know, for all your business needs. So he, um, he got, he got out of farming because that doesn't work. Yeah. He got out of being a farmer, but he stayed in farming and he was still in the seed business and he was an entrepreneur at heart. So he did some things or he started a seed business and cleaning and did some other things. So, um, long story short, you know, that's the eighties. So then I, you know, I, I bebop along, you know, I'm playing mostly sports in my life, you know, trying to get decent grades and being a good Iowa, small town Iowa kid. And then, you know, my eyes kind of open up. I moved from <clears throat> there to Dubuque and played college baseball and basketball for a year. And then I moved out to Oregon, played baseball out there. It's just having fun going to school. And then my parents decided to move back from Oregon to Iowa. And uh, then I went back to the University of Iowa. And then that's when kind of the whole family dynamic changed, right? So the universe decided that I was, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. Hodgkin's disease, uh, lymphoma. I was 19. Uh, I had uh, stage 3B cancer. So I had two golf ball size tumors in my upper chest cavity. I had a huge parasite tumor in my right arm. And that's where I kind of knew because my arm, when I was pitching in baseball, I could never heal. Like towards the end of my career, I was just 
having a hard time sustaining, you know, without being having a really sore arm. And then uh, I went through chemo. I did exploratory surgery. They pulled out my spleen. My spleen was Oof. filled with tumors. And uh, that set in motion what Wallace Farms became. My dad saw a lady speak on behalf of the Weston A. Price Foundation and opened his eyes that food is medicine. And we have lost that wisdom. We no longer view food as medicine. We view food as either enjoyment or just sustenance to, you know, to fill our bellies and move on in life. Now, I think a lot of people understand that a little more and more, you know, as, as we evolve, but we're not totally there yet because uh, we haven't changed the, the core of what farming is. So we'll talk about that probably a little bit here later in the podcast, but um so yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm gutted, literally gutted on the, you know, take my spleen out and sew me back up and pretty rough journey, you know, getting back up to speed. But, um, you know, finished college, moved to Chicago by Wrigley, three years, loved it, hated it, you know, made a bunch of money, spent all of it, you know, I, I was rebelling against my cancer, right? I was very bitter and angry. Um, How are you making money? Corporate insurance, suit and tie, three years, put fighting Chicago traffic, um, so then I moved all the way out to, I went to polar opposite. I went up in the mountains of Colorado and started a culinary program, European style apprenticeship where you work for the resort. I worked for Keystone resort. I worked, worked all week, 40 hours. And then I went to school on Mondays with, with a culinary instructor in my class. And then after that, we'd go back into our kitchens and work for chefs and they would sign off on our skill logs. Right. So so you got the combination of um, instructional in the classroom and really hands-on, like literally in the fire. So I did that for a year and skied and it was great. But, you know, up in the mountains, it just didn't feel like home. You know, I I, uh, I needed to get back to, you know, a garden because you can, you know, it's all rocks and, mountain, you know, you can't really grow, grow a garden there. I mean, per se. So, and I miss my family. So I, I moved back to Iowa, moved to Des Moines. And about that time, we were a couple years in with Wallace Farms. And so my dad and yeah, yeah, we got to back up, right? We got to back up to (laughs) Wallace Farms. All right. So Wallace Farms was was birthed because my dad saw Weston A. Price Foundation, right? Uh, The story of food is medicine. About the same time, he meets a friend of his who's raising grass-fed beef. And telling this friend is telling my dad about the power of CLA and conjugated linoleic acid as a healing fat and omega-3 and six should be in line and that's healing. So that, that was one core of like animal nutrition equates to human nutrition. So my dad comes back and says, all right, every, the whole family sit down, sit around the table. We're, we're changing our diet and we've got this friend of mine who does grass-fed beef and we bought a cow and we loved it. And we just got to talking like, what if, what if we started our own grass-fed beef company? You know, this, this friend of his was a farmer and he had beef and he was a seed guy and he just didn't have time to market. So we could sell his beef for him, right? He makes money. We, we buy his beef. We, we handle the retail side. And so um, we started that. My dad was trying to ship a couple packages here and there. My sister-in-law who lived in Chicago suburbs 
you know, we that was about the time websites started, you know, like we're talking early 2000s, right? I mean, websites haven't always been around. So we had this like, you know, basic website. So we got people finding us and... Um, how, how were they finding you? Just probably typing in grass-fed beef, right? There was, about, there was probably like five of us in the whole Midwest selling grass-fed beef. I mean, this was before... You know, even people knew what grass-fed beef was. Now it's now it's commonplace, right? Even if you don't buy it, people know what it is. Yeah. So my dad was a visionary. He's like, man, this grass-fed beef is going to be huge someday. You know, this is in 2000, 20 years later. And he was right. I mean, he said, yeah, this is going to be in all the grocery stores. People are going to figure out that grass-fed beef tastes better and it's healthier for you. And, and we kind of were like, I, we, all right, whatever, dad. I mean, sure. So, um, yeah, he was right, man. He nailed it. So we started and then... We were a couple years in. I don't know. We probably did like ten grand a year in sales, right? So I, I decided I got to leave Colorado because I'm just, just not happy, right? I just couldn't put down roots. Literally couldn't put down roots there. So I moved back to Iowa, kind of tail between my legs. You know, I'm 20, 27 at this point. I don't have a wife or kids or family. I don't have a, hardly have a job. You know, I got, <laughs> I got longer hair, right? Like I'm the some hippie from Colorado, right? You're, you look kind of like me without the Asian. Right. And, and less smart, less smart. And, um, so they kind of, you know, we all sit down and, uh, they're like, Hey, uh, you know, Nick, you're, you, you don't really have a job. You really don't know what you want to do in life. You're kind of a loser. Like maybe you should try doing Wallace Farms full time. Like, let's see what, let's see what it can become. Cause my sister-in-law, I think she was pregnant with her second kid. And, you know, you can't be carting meat all around Chicago, trying to go to people's houses and, and meeting, you know, random people. So, um, so I said, sure, sign me up. So I'm like, all right, well, how do, how do I, how do I start a me business? So, um, Joel Salatin, I don't know if you know that name. I'm yep. sure some people, yep. People yeah, listening. Fan. Yeah. He's kind of like the Maharishi, you know, grandpa, grandfather of, of the direct to consumer me business. So I read, my dad gave me all of his books, said, read these books and, and see what you think. And it, I was, he was a great writer. I was addicted so I went to farmer's markets and tried to get email lists and sell some meat. And, and then I started these metropolitan buying clubs where I'd meet people at a business, like a chiropractor friend of mine. And so I just was hustling, you know, one customer at a time. And so slowly I, you know, I was at the right place, at the right time. Uh, one thing I did um, that was smart was I added more than beef. So I found some neighbors that did pork and chicken I went up to Alaska because a, uh, a, a friend of mine that I, bef- I befriended, she lived up there and she was from Iowa and she was bringing back wild Alaskan salmon, like like six, seven, eight hundred pounds every fall after the salmon runs. And she she said, I, I, I have a newborn. I can't do it anymore. And I I said, I'll I'll do it. So she gave me her email list and she'd get all the salmon packaged, you know, with vacuum seals up there. And then I I distribute it here. And so that really added to my customer list because those people buying high quality wild sockeye salmon were buying grass fed beef from me. So I just started this little you know niche meat business and grew one customer of time at the back off the, off the back of the pickup truck and and then we needed a bigger truck and a bigger truck. So over the course of a decade, you know we built Wallace Farms up to be have thousands of customers. Was it like a a hockey puck kind of deal or was it, it just it was really slow? It, it was a it was a I don't yeah probably I mean we doubled 
you know, we went from 10 to 23 to 47,000 to 90,000, you know, it was almost a doubling every year. Oh, wow. Until we got to like, I don't know, six or 700,000. And do you think most of the growth was word of mouth? Oh, yeah. All word of mouth. And, and, and people just typing in grass-fed beef for the first time. You know, they saw it on Michael Pollan's book, you know, Eat Why, uh, um, or his article, which was Power Steer, which turned into Omnivore's Dilemma. And then he's apprenticed, uh, apprenticed at Salatin. So Salatin's, you know, so, you know, it was just a matter of time before word spread that grass-fed beef was the alternative to commodity, you know, feedlot beef. So right place, right time. You know, I enjoyed talking to customers. I provided good service. I, I, I was spot on with the seasoning and the packaging. So, and that was the culinary part that came in, right? Like I knew what tasted good. Yeah. I knew what customers wanted. I knew what I wanted. I knew what my family wanted. So I was just the, the, the middle guy that did all the things that were really hard to put together. So we built it up and then right, you know, like mm, somewhere there, like maybe 10 years ago. So it'd be like 2011. I'm like, you know, we got all this ground beef for this trim. And I, I, I you know, I'm always in my truck. I'm, I'm always buying snack sticks or some jerky or something at the store. Right. And I'm like, we should create our own snack stick. So started that journey. It took forever because I didn't want a bunch of sugar and preservatives in our snack sticks. So I had to convince the snack stick manufacturer. Kevin Western was his name. He's really a great guy. And we got to be good friends. He's like, I might be able to do it. You know, he was doing some Tonka bars. They were one of the first. Um, but they had cranberries in there that had some sugar. But so we we got it right and wrong and right and wrong for like a year. And then finally we nailed it, you know. And so I built Nick Sticks up to be a really big company, like super fast growth, up to like four million in sales in five years. It was nuts. Oh, Nick Sticks is a separate company. Separate company. Yep. Oh, interesting. Yep. Well, it was part of no, it was part of Wallace Farms for the longest time. And then we sold off the majority of it like five years ago because it was just, it, w- it was too much risk. I mean, it was like crazy. You're in thousands of grocery stores and doing all this stuff. And everybody's, everybody in my family's like house and mortgage and everything was relying, you know, like we had to keep borrowing more money for more inventory. Yeah. And we just, you know, we just didn't know what we want wanted to do with it. We needed, we were at the point where we either needed to get really big or we needed to like cut out the grocery stores and slow it down. And we chose to just look for a partner. And then they said, hey, why don't we just buy you out? And then I reinvested money and I, and I worked for him for a little bit. But my heart was really kind of coming back and getting more into farming and trying to ch- transition farming. Yeah. Um, not that being in, you know, the grocery stores and the re- it's just a different game. You know, it's it's a it's a kind of a pay to play, you know, working with grocery stores and brokers and distributors. I just it wasn't fun anymore and it was a lot more risk so okay so just for clarity so you had these nick sticks and you were selling them to grocery stores in the beginning we well we no, just in the beginning we'd sell on our website then that got to be huge okay and then and then you sold off nick sticks to another company and they were putting it in grocery stores well we did the direct to consumer which grew up to be like a million bucks crazy then then we then we got into amazon d- selling directly right and that was when Amazon was just starting to like really be good for small producers or small independents, right? So we did like like a crazy million dollars there. And then we're like, well, hey, we, we should get into grocery stores. 
Then it was mostly mom and pop grocery stores or like little, you know, like fruitful yield and what, you know, something that wasn't like huge, wasn't like Domin well, Dominic's is gone, but in Chicago, like Jewel and, and even Whole Foods. Then we're like, hey, we should get a broker and we could, we should, we should start hitting these bigger chains. Yeah. In hindsight, you know, that was the part that got stressful and they'd really, you know, they really squeeze you and it's, it's a game. So if I had to do it all over again. I probably would just sell website and Amazon and even, you know, Amazon's whatever they're trying to rule the world. So. <laughs> Wait, was it stressful because the margins are so small? So you have to yeah. produce a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, if you got into a Sprouts, like you'd have to free fill the whole store. So every store would have to get a cases of sticks for free. Like wow. you, the first shipment for, to go on the shelves is free. Wow. And then you have to pay like 25 grand a year in marketing to get on, stay on the shelves. You're paying to be on the shelves. Yeah. And then you hope that you're selling two to three packages of sticks and all, you know, 200, 300 of their stores. So that's just one example. But so that was the part that's like, eh, I don't know. Now we were grew, like we added a lot of stores and I mean, we were one of the better sticks on the market, but now that space is crazy. Like if you go into, you know, Whole Foods or anywhere and I mean, there's snack, I mean, there's like eight kinds of snack sticks, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's ridiculous. Yeah, maybe it was good. We got, I don't know, whatever it is, what it, they're still doing great. They're, they're doing awesome. And I'm still in, you know, I'm still, still part owner. And so, but you know, there's only so much time in the day too. So we kind of pivoted back to Wallace farms and I, I did more cows and I took on another farm that I turned into organic. And so, and I had more kids along the way. So I have three kids now. And, um, were you working full time while you had three kids? Oh yeah. More, more. Well, I mean, define full time, right? I mean, like sixty hours, more than sixty hours. I mean, yeah, ebb and flow. But yeah, there were weeks that were yeah, a grind. That's crazy. You know, yeah, like yeah. you know, you drive into Chicago on a Friday, and you work all day Saturday doing three drops. That's where you see me, or you see me used to see me on Saturdays in North Shore downtown, and then um, the next day I do Naperville. Yeah, that's a half a day. And then the meat, before you were sourcing it from other farmers, are you producing your own meat? Both. So I started out just selling our good friends. Then he didn't have enough. So then I added another guy. Then, so yeah, let me, this is, we jump back in time a little bit. Then we were, we were like, well, why don't we raise beef? So I took our family farm that was just corn and soybeans, you know, uh, this is where my dad grew up, this farm here, where I'm talking. That was just corn and soybeans. We, this hadn't been farmed by anybody in the family for like 20 years. So dad's like, hey, we got a 160 acre farm. Like, what do you think about, you know, being a farmer? I mean, I grew up around farm, never got old enough to be a farmer. And then, you know, dad took a long break and we said, screw it, let's let's transition this corn and soybean farm back to forages and grass and put animals on it. And uh, so I did that while I was growing Wallace Farms. So I'd come and do chores in the morning, feed the, you know, the sheep, the, the cows, the chickens, the whatever I was into. And then I'd run to Des Moines and pack orders. And then that night I'd go and deliver the orders and then come home and crash. You know, I'd do that 
two to three days a week. And then I'd go into Chicago every third week weekend. And then, cause that's where all the people are. Right. I mean, yeah. there's only so much traction you can get here in Iowa. Cause we only, and we only have 3 million, 3 million people in the whole state. I mean, there's 3 million people just in, you know, half the suburbs in Chicago. So yeah, I was just, I, mean, I was hustling. I was young. It was all right. You know, um, so we were building a farm and we were building a business and those are kind of separate. You know, there's a marketing side to, to farming and sales. And then there's the production side of marketing, and, you know, uh, of the farm. Was it a lot of work to switch up that land from soybeans and corn to whatever you were switching it to? Good question. Grass? Yeah. Great question. Cause you're going from years, decades, you know, since the sixties, seventies, uh, of buy, uh, what it was biological farming before World War II, right? When I say biological, they didn't have pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, GMO seeds. There had to be rotations and biodiversity and animals and crops and integration of all that, right? Oh, that was actually happening before World War II. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. My dad, my dad grew up here. He was born in '46, grew up on the farm in the '50s, early '60s. He's like, we had six crops and cattle, hogs, chickens. And all the neighbors had that milking cow. I mean, everybody had a handful of animals and more than a handful of crops, all being rotated, clover, hay. And, you know, there was no just, hey, I'm going to plant corn and I'm going to plant soybeans. That, that, that was like, you didn't do that because the soil wouldn't allow it, right? They didn't, they didn't have all the inputs to, 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 to make it a machine like it is today. And so that changed about the time my dad left for college in the early 60s, he can remember his dad saying, yeah, I got this new, you know, chemical and I can wipe out all these weeds, man. I got to work less. I don't have to cultivate, you know, and get rid of morning glory. It wouldn't get wrapped up in the cultivator. I mean, there was, you know, could you imagine being a farmer just, just sweating over all these damn weeds that are knocking their yields and their money down, you know, their profitability down to, uh, you know, lower levels and so, but little did they know, you know, the government and whatever was, you know, the EPA at that time was like, oh yeah, totally safe, you know. Well, all they did was they were they were just took the war machine and brought that home, and instead of making bombs and 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 runways with anhydrous, you know, they turned that that laboratory towards agriculture, and then and then the factories turned from tanks and jeeps and planes to farm machinery right so the 60s was like rocking man i mean it was it was probably a good time to be alive right yeah sex drugs <laughs> rock and roll and hip you know the sick you know and then so you get into 70s and 80s and then the 80s really changed earl butts was uh, reagan's secretary of ag and he said we're gonna we're going to outcompete the Russians and we're going to fit, we're going to plant grain fence row to fence row and you either got to get bigger, you got to get out. And that was really the change that, mm. you know, you had the, you had a little bit of the farm, you know, whatever the farm crisis was kind of in the late seventies. And the, there was a great, you know, I, I, I probably need to go back and listen to my dad. I wasn't even born yet, but you know, there was, there was some, a little bit of trouble in the 70s, but the 80s really wiped out a lot of farmers with that interest rate debacle. Yeah. And then the hog farmers had a couple, their market fell out and that knocked a lot of them out. And then another virus, pig flu type thing blew through the rest of the pig farmers. And then after that, man, it was like you either did grain farming or you were a dairy guy. 
And now they've almost wiped out all the dairy farmers too. So let's go back to your farm. The work that it took to switch from corn and soybeans to. You're right. I got up on a tangent. No, no. All right. It's so all bi- biological, then it went to chemical. Now we got to bring it back to biological. Mm-hmm. Right. So that takes, I mean, organic, say in three years, right? From zero to certified organic is three years. But we saw on our farm, some parts were great and, you know, organic works for that. Like I'm, I think the chemicals leave the land pretty quick. The the land wants to heal itself. Right. Mm. So the chemicals I think can be, uh, mitigated like very soon. Where do they go? Well, I just think they, they, they can dissipate. And I think that, um, I think the soil, you know, want, wants to rid itself. I'm just speaking like without, I mean, I'm sure there's science to say yes and no to this. Like they probably, two, two scientists. So you're just, you're would going off argue. of your own experience of right. your testing. Yeah. Right. Now, I am saying though, that just because you stop spraying and the chemicals aren't there, that doesn't mean anything because you've got to bring that soil back to life. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So the, the patient's alive, but you've got to, it can't, it's immobilized. It's got a, got a heartbeat, but barely. Right. So we've got to bring it back to health. And so that was a process of years, you know, five, six, seven years and no, you know, no earthworms. And, you know, like, so we, we were, we were having low yields, you know, looking back, it probably would have brought in a lot more livestock compost. I would have done a lot more foliar spraying, but you got to remember, this has been, you know, 15 years ago. So, and, and you know, I, I, I'm here today to try to tell a farmer that's going to do that now, like, don't make the mistakes we made. And you just got to get, you got to breathe that life in as fast as possible with as many tools as you can. And so animals are the, the solution, right? Whether they're on their, on that field, leaving their groceries behind after they process them. Or you need to apply it. You know, you need to bring in other farms, manure, and f- maybe spraying fish emulsion and spraying molasses and, you know, getting the bugs back. It's all about the bugs, right? You need the fungi to kind of eat the bacteria. And then that, then that, I'm probably a biologist is going you know, <laughs> to listen to this and be like, oh man. But, you know, you need fungi and then you need the bacteria and then you need to break down the carbon, right? Because as soon as you're breaking down carbon, it's leaving all the the goodies once, you know, the carbon just doesn't disappear when an animal eats it, right? It's processing it and then it's leaving, leaving more than what it took in, right? An animal's eating that grass, which is, you know, a lot of it's carbon, did you have to bring in seeds to have vegetation come up or did you, you just. Yep. No, we planted. Yeah. You come in, you, you plant, you know, a variety of grasses, legumes, forbs, chicory, you know, as much, much as you can either afford or think you can get to establish, you know, there's certain things that'll establish quicker. And then you, then you do your best to manage it with, with cattle, right? You, you hit it, you hit it hard and then you get off it and you let it rest. You, you, it's it's like, to me, it's like pulsing, right? Just like an ebb and flow. Yeah. Was it, was it hard to get, get that rhythm down? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. I mean, too many animals, not enough, wrong timing. You know, I, I followed, I'd, I'd hit it decent with the cows. And then, and then I think I made the mistake of bringing in the sheep behind it, you know, to kind of, 
browse and clean up. And I, I just think I didn't leave enough behind. Like there, the, the, some people would say that you should eat half and leave half. So I was probably more like eating 80 and leaving 20. So I didn't kick that photo synthesis in maybe, you know, soon enough with leaving a little more material. Yeah. I mean, every season's different. I mean, I'm, some, some months I'm like, oh, I killed it this month. Like I did great. And then other months you're like, oh man, like it had that rainstorm, you know, it was super hot or it was it just, yeah. So you can, you can beat yourself up all day long, right? But um, <laughs> it's, it is not, it is not checkers. You know, it is, this is, this is chess. Mm. This is a lifelong chess match. And you're always sitting there analyzing the moves. How much of it is your gut feeling and how much of it is... It's all in the head. I would say the best tool is op- observation. You know, you look at a, a ruminant animal, one of our cows, and look at their poop. Too loose and you got too much. It's too washy, right? You need to probably have it a little more mature. Too too tight and you need you know a little more protein, right? So... Now that's not perfect either because it's everything's lush in May, right? Everything's popping off. So you'll get a little bit of that. But, but yeah, observation, right? You just tell like, do they look like they're stressed? Do they look like they're gaining weight or losing weight? Do they look, you know, do they look content? So I'm going to pivot. What's the difference between your meat and the meat that I would get from Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or... Um, jewel. Well, I, I always contend that this is no knock against Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and grocery stores. Yeah. They can't work with small producers. I mean, they, because it's a number, I mean, they, they've got to have so many animals. Imagine all the Whole Foods, right? They've got to have in place large producers because they need large batches processed all the time. Yeah. Right? You go into Whole Foods, that meat section looks the same, has the same amount of quantity all the time, every single day. To do that, you can't have small artisan processors trying to feed that pipeline. I mean, talk about pulling your hair out. Imagine trying to be the the guy who works at Whole Foods or the gal that works at Whole Foods. It's like, all right, you're going to... You, you have this quadrant, you have all the stores west of the Rockies and you have to give them, have to make sure that the meat case is like beautiful and perfect and tastes good. And there's just the amount of right of fat and cuts all the time. Like, holy, no, I wouldn't want that job. So hats off to them. And that, that serves a purpose, right? But the difference, you know, and I would say, you know, maybe, maybe the CLA and the Omega 6 to 3s you know, are a little bit different. It, it depends. They've got all these gap ratings now, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about Whole Foods. But um, so some are better than others. They try to tell you they're trying to be as transparent as they can. You know, Amazon's got them now, and and I don't know how much money they make off their meat. You know, on their meat counters, but it's a numbers game, and they they can afford to not make the margins that a small farmer like myself or people that I work with. They only have so many animals, so you have to make it as much money as you can per animal. It's not a numbers game. It's a it's a quality and and you know high dollar proposition. Do you think that their quality is as good quality as your quality? I I would probably say no. I mean, I should just say no, but 
I want to leave a little room in there that there could be a handful of products in there that would, you know, could be similar. Yeah. Now here's the other thing. I'm not going to name names here. Product can be brought in from overseas. Grass fed, right? Comes from a great place. Tasmania, New Zealand, Australia, probably done right, you know, raised really well, probably almost in better environment than we might have here, right? Mm -hmm. Tasmania is like one of the most beautiful places in the world to be a cow. It never gets cold, less than 40, it never gets hot. They're grazing on volcanic ash pastures, right? Like, like if you're a cow, you want to be born there. The problem is it comes across the sea, you know, takes three to four weeks to get here. It's processed, cut up and packaged in a store and they put product to USA because it was fabricated here. Hmm. It was, it was cut and ground and formed and whatever packaged here product to USA. And so there's a big debate going on called um, cool C O O L country of origin labeling. And so that would eliminate No, I mean, it wouldn't eliminate the product, but it would eliminate the end user being confused that that was an actual product that was grass fed, that was raised and cut and born, you know, born and processed here. Yeah. So, and that happens a lot more than you would think. Trust me. So, you know, politicians, why do they not want to do that? Probably lobbying money, you know, JBS, big companies are, are doing both domestic raised and imports and it all funnels into a system and it would, you know, cost, cause them headaches and more money to, to package and label and be, be more transparent. So, you know, but the problem is you don't know. How would you ever know? And you sure know that you didn't support a, a, a farmer or a, an organization like, you know, Wallace Farms to, to aggregate that and to, you know, to keep the money here kind of local, right? Everybody wants to shop local as much as they can. And marketing just has gotten very misleading. That's, that's what I think people, I, I think people know that. I just think that, you know, we, we try to live a convenient life. Mm, I think most people don't know. I think the people who know is a minority. Really? Yeah, maybe not. I probably just have been known, I've known it for so long that I probably take it for granted that I know it. How, how do you price your meats? You just, um, I mean, you've got to like, okay, here's what the farmer can get paid. Uh, here's what I know my processor is going to need to cut it and package it and stay in business. And I take that number and I try to say, all right, you know, are we going to shoot for a 30% margin or a 40% margin? And that's the margin I need because I've got to hire a couple people either to do my job or to do the farm job. When I'm in Chicago delivering, I got a delivery truck. I've got, you know, I mean, all those things for small businesses and they just add up. It's great. It's, you wouldn't think that small businesses would have so many line item expenses, but it, it's, and they just get to be more and more and more and more. It's, um, you know, the small business owner is going to be an endangered species here, you know, within a decade or less. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's scary. It's kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole lot of fucked up. But you know what? I don't know. I, maybe the worm's turning, you know, like, I mean, my wife still orders from Amazon, so I'm kind of a little bit of a hypocrite. But, um, you know, I don't know. I think people I think people get it. I just don't think we have the alternative set up yet to to really bring it home. I think we're getting there. I think there needs to be people who create systems so that the accessibility of these things that are local is 
accessible. Like people use Amazon because it's so easy. Yep. And I think um, <clears throat> if we're able to streamline it. Yeah, exactly. This is what I was thinking is if there was an app where it tells me where my food is coming from, exactly who it is, and I can somehow it systematically, oh, I'm buying from you or I'm buying from someone who has a farm out in Peoria, you know, and right. we're, um, yeah, that's a good segue. I'm working on that. I think next month I'll be it. And I don't know how, when this podcast is coming out, but I think uh, in March I'll be able to announce, I've been working on that on the agricultural side and I'll just give you a little bit of a snap, um, a setup on it. But I contend that the only way to change agriculture is through the consumer. Mm-hmm. Right? The, I, it, I believe that. Like what, what's the point of having a farmer grow really good high n- nutrient dense food if the consumer's not going to be there to pay for it. So there's three things and and um I I've uh, I've done a couple of videos on this but there's three things that have to happen. You have to have the farmers, you have to have the artisan food I'll call them artisan food makers, food processors. You know, the people in the middle, the butchers, right? And the and the people making fermented kimchi and and whatever and having honey and all that good stuff. So you have farmers, you have food, artisan food makers, and you have consumers. And if you can turn on all three of those levers at the same time, you can build it. And so um, that's where my focus has been the last two years, almost three. And, um, We'll be able, we're going to be able to do that on the meat side. I don't know how the other food parts will, you know, fill in, but I'd love to, love to have it be include like, you know, sourdough breads and vegetables and honey and fermented foods and all that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think it's coming. I, I mean, I, I really do. I just don't know the time. I'm always, my timing's always awful. <laughs> like good ideas. And I think, oh, yeah, this is totally going to happen. And I'm like, man, I was wrong. But then, then it happens years later, right? So maybe maybe we're there now. I, I don't think the timing matters. I think what matters is that you're doing it because it's important. It, good, I think. Good point. Yeah, because yeah. if you waited around for somebody else to do it, then no, wouldn't get done. I mean, I've been waiting for ten years for like so three years ago. I kind of started on an idea to do this. I mean, for 10, 15 years. I mean, I've been like, okay, when are we? when are we going to change agriculture? Because, you know, I'm, I'm doing it here on my farm and then the neighboring farm I took over. And then I see maybe a couple other people doing it, but you know, Iowa is 20, like I think we're like 26 million acres in Iowa, right. That are farm ground. And of 26 million acres of farm ground in Iowa, I only think like not even a percent is alternative agriculture. It's all corn and soybeans. It's nuts. And it's been that way forever. Do you feel like a part of that is because uh, the education that you got, they have not really gotten that? No, I think it's because the government systems and the insurance and the corporations um, have funneled the farmer that way. I think they've eroded farmer sovereignty a little bit every decade. Yeah. And do you feel like you were able to do it because you did it early enough? I think someone could do it today. Maybe even a little easier. 
maybe not the marketing, eh, maybe not the marketing side, you know, like I, I don't know if I'd have that rocket, that hockey, what'd you call it? Hockey, hockey stick, stick, right? Yeah. The hockey stick. I don't know if I'd have that now. Cause there's, there's more availability, not necessarily. There is more availability from the small producer too, but think about when you go into the stores, right? Mm-hmm. Everything, every store has got grass fed beef. Every store has got natural this, antibiotic, hormone free that. It, whether or not it's totally a a grade, top level, but it's there, and it, it's kind of that greenwashing, right? Like the labels looks good, and you know, I don't know. I'm in Whole Foods. It's kind of a nice place, and it feels good. I remember when I was into organic, and not a lot of people were really knowledgeable about that that was like 10 or so years ago and now it's like it's huge and now i'm looking for like is this local was this made locally or was this from a local source and that's what where i'm looking at and maybe 10 years down the line that's going to be important to people yeah um hopefully sooner (laughs) (laughs) we're still slow man i know it's gonna it's gonna take a long a long time I don't, you know, I feel like, I feel like the world's changing. Like, um, you know, I, they, they, not to get too woo-woo on you, although I'm sure you and I could talk woo-woo, but, you know, Age of Aquarius, like, you know, that, that started a year ago, December 21st. Tell more about the Age of Aquarius. What does that mean? Well, I'm probably a total novice, but it's, it's the alignment of, I don't know. It's like four different planets, right? Like it hasn't happened for thousands of years, thousands. I think it was like 6,000 or maybe even longer. It's like an awakening, right? Like, and, um, and you can't mess with the stars, man. Like, you know what they say, it's written in the stars. So, you know, a little bit woo woo, but, um, but I believe in that, you know, because it's about energy, right? Everything's energy, money's energy. Cause it's just people's time and effort into something um and so you know animals walking around our energy that the soil's got energy you and i have energy the what we're talking right now this is just energy um you know and frequency and vibration right so all those things now more and more people know about it they're starting to speak that language um they're starting to understand it you know quantum physics right like we, you know, Zach Bush is a guy that I really, really respect and like the way he jives and talks. And he's a triple board certified doctor, but he's talking about, he got out of that. He got out of the allopathy and the whole grind. And now he's talking about, you know, mycology and the fungal like connection, quantum connection we'll all have. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you that carries through with food and it carries through how we how we treat each other and how we talk to each other and how we see things. And I think the the big machines and the industrial worlds are, are maybe on the decline. I can hope, you know, it does feel like that, but maybe that's cause I'm in that reality, that way of thinking versus yeah. everybody else. Yeah. And maybe COVID did it, you know, like maybe just that just shook, shook the tree so much that it's like, wait a minute, we need to reevaluate all of it so yo you know what we didn't talk about is where are you at with the cancer oh it has been um two weeks before i turned 21 
I got an all clear. And then I got really drunk and slept on my sidewalk outside of my house when I had, I had a huge party. So not that I needed to share that with the audience, but that's what, ha- <laughs> that's what happened. That's yeah. what people, I mean, if you're going to celebrate a 21st birthday, it was pretty, pretty epic, right? Like, yeah. Hey, I'm cancer free and probably, probably shouldn't have, uh, done that to my body, but I'm still here. So, but, yeah. um, so it's, yeah. And I'm 44. So what? It's 23, 23 years, man. Yeah. Why so, do you think that happened? Atrazine. That's a chemical that they spray on farms. It's a weed, weed killer. I, the reason I say that is I have, um, if anybody knows about muscle testing, um, homeopathic type doctors and healers and energy workers, you know, you can muscle test and your body, your body's always telling the truth. You can ask your body questions and your body will always tell the truth because it's emitting, uh, um, emitting that energy, right? Yeah. And so muscle testing is, is I had uh, more than one, uh, more than one um, healer said, I'm muscle testing that, that you know, like uh, it was a chemical later in your youth, like high school or even college. And um, I remember very specifically being in a creek uh, after some like spring floods, you know, like we'd play around in this park and I, mm-hmm. and I went home that night and I just had this, it was almost like a, a shock. Like I, I thought it was, I was sick, but it was, I mean, it hit me like I was on the couch. My parents were gone. And I remember I had sweats and these like tremors and almost like an out of body experience and just thought I was going to die. Yeah. And it had to have been the atrazine just flooding that. And I, I'm sure there was doses of it in the drinking water. And because I had a tumor in my right side of my armpit, underneath my armpit, that's how, yeah. you know, that's where it started. I had a parasized tumor in there. So I dealt with that. And then two years after I had it, one of my best friends that I grew up with, same class, drinking water, football, played in the same streams hmm. that day. We were together, right? Yeah. Um, he had Hodgkin's lymphoma in the same arm. Wow. Two, two years later. Wow. I mean, Come on now. Hmm. You know, as my dad says, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. <laughs> right? That's good. So, um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was chemical, you know, food, food had lost its medicine. Um, you know, I, I left home and mom, mom wasn't scratch cooking and I'm in college and, you know, what is it? I was dehydrated, poor nutrition and might've been drinking and, doing things that shouldn't, you know, I wasn't exactly getting sleep and, you know, doing all that. So, yeah. And I was playing college sports, you know, I was, I was taxing the body, working out and running, you know, so it was just inflammation, stress, chemical overload. I mean, we live in a toxic world, man. Yeah. So that's why cancer rates are 60% and and rising 50% of kids have autoimmune. I mean, bang, bang, list goes on and on. We could have a whole another podcast on that. That's for sure. (laughs) But no, I don't live in fear, man. I don't, I don't, I'm not getting cancer back. Like, you know, fear is the silent killer, right? 